Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Good to have you along. And I'm really looking forward to today's chat with Dimitri Adler. Dimitri is Chief Solution Architect at a very cool company called Data Society. And Data Society provides high-quality data science training and advisory services for corporations and government agencies. So, Dimitri, thank you very much for coming along today. Ben, thank you very much for having me. Now, I notice you haven't come alone to this meeting. You've got some moral support. Who have you got with you uh, for people who can't see? I do. So I've got my cat, Miko, who likes to participate on all meetings, podcasts, and conversations. So she's, uh, she's helping me find the right words. <laughs> <laughs> good to have some guidance and moral support. Very exactly. Good. Exactly. Nice. Uh, so, exactly. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. And, and whereabouts are you calling in from? Uh, I'm based in Washington, D.C., right in the middle of the city. Right in the heart of it. Very good. I want to get into data society in a moment, but can we just give some background for people listening in? What's your background? Because you've got a very data-driven career, let's say. So what led you to the roles you played over time in terms of the data science side of things, analyst side of things, into the formation of data society? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've had a bit of an untraditional career. I've done a number of things in my life. I started uh, as a mergers and acquisitions banker. Um, in New York many moons ago. And so I did that for a few years. Um, and then um, after advising others uh, for a number of years, I wanted to uh, be a principal. And so I worked at an investment fund that's part of Macquarie Group. Yeah. Um, and that was a really cool job that I'm really grateful for in that we built complicated models. We set up complicated structures um, in order to generate excess returns for, for Macquarie and its clients. And so that was a really neat job in that um, I learned to appreciate the many different ways that statistical modeling or what we call today data science can really improve business outcomes. Um, and the analyses that we were doing uh, at that time were complicated and gave me an insight into how um, if you were to automate them, and if you were to make them more accessible to the general business audience, you could accomplish a lot more. And so back then, um, when I told people, so like there's, uh, there's this thing called data science and there are these programming languages that are not that difficult to learn that help to automate otherwise complicated processes, people would say, well, why, is, why did you call it R? Why did you call it Python? What is this data science mm -hmm. thing? What kind of data do you work with? And there was just a lack of understanding of the discipline by the marketplace. And that was back in 2013, 2014. And so I saw an opportunity to uh, team up with a couple of friends, uh, John and Marav, and start, um, uh, start an education company of all things to effectively teach professionals um, how to streamline uh, and automate uh, complex data analyses and data visualizations in order to make better decisions. So what kind of people were you aiming at, at the people who already advanced in their careers or just thinking about getting into it for a start? What kind of target market was it? 
Yeah, well, we, we targeted the market that we knew. So we targeted other people like myself, John and Marav, and we all had different backgrounds. So Marav was an educator, uh, John uh, is an attorney. And so we targeted a professional audience. Um, we said, let's take folks who are already in the workforce and already are sort of doing something um, at a competent level and help them get to that next step. That was at least the genesis of, where, of how we started. And so it was always targeted at a professional um, stereotype, right? A professional prototype of a persona. Um, and over time, that persona has evolved in terms of uh, different levels of skills. You know, today we train folks who are just starting in, their, in the world of data analytics and need to learn the basics of Excel, for example, or the basics of Tableau or Power BI. We've expanded our repertoire to working with executives who need to understand what machine learning and AI is, what questions it can answer, and how what it can do for their organizations. At the extreme end, we also work with postdocs at a wide array of, of federal um, and corporate organizations who are already highly skilled in the arena of machine learning and would like to add additional skills to their repertoire on an expedited timeline, work with those as well. Excellent. I know from my own experience um, in the tech world and marketing in the tech world, you can track a lot of online marketing. So if you run an ad, you can do special tracking UTM tags or pixels or all sorts of tracking things. But sometimes when you do offline marketing, it doesn't always tie together. And I know with a high volume business where we added a little box that says, hey, how did you hear about us? And that was the first time I really experienced the magic of machine learning because people can type in anything. I met Joe at a conference. But over time, the machine learned that when they saw the word met or conference and things like that, it gradually taught itself to recognize this was a networking event and hence a networking event category was built and established. And that's an example. And so then obviously you can learn, shall we do more of that, less of that? Is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? Very much so. Very much so. And there's lots of derivatives of that in a variety of industries. So we've over time chosen to specialize in a handful of those. We work a lot with financial organizations, financial institutions, um, healthcare organizations, and aerospace and defense. Um, and those are the three primary verticals where we found the most of activity um, and spend a lot of time on. But the use cases you described are pretty classic. Got it. And so for people listening to this who might have an interest in uh, teaching others or seeking an audience for their HR tech products or their consulting services, whatever it may be, when launching or when expanding out, the world is just so huge. We can go for any market and you've just named three really big markets. And I know you've kind of evolved over time that they might be your three main focus points, but for companies that are trying to work out how to best expand, sometimes going too wide is a challenge. So how did you come around, get past that? Did you look at particular use cases such as not just levels of expertise, but use cases? So problems that people needed to solve, such as the, the monthly report or the annual books for an analyst? How do you get around that side of things? Yeah. So it's a two-part answer. Um, one is that when you think about the types of use cases for data analytics or machine learning, there's a number of canonical use cases. You know, Ben, you described one with respect to marketing. So figuring out who's most likely to buy and what categories exist. Um, you're answering generally a number of questions. Uh, what groups exist? What group is this most likely to be in? How much of something will happen? When will it happen? 
where will it happen to whom, right? Those are the general questions. And you can answer them uh, practically with respect to any single industry. And so there are marketing use cases that we help healthcare organizations with, and there are marketing use cases that we help financial services organizations with. Now, the second part of the answer is, well, so how did we end up in these three specific segments? So um, in order to get a customer, you know, we, you have to have credibility. You have to convince them that you're very good at what you do, you know, exactly what you're doing. And so the first few um, customers actually came out of some of the activities that me and my co-founders have had in our past lives between healthcare, John Walter Griffles, uh, myself in financial, in financial services, um, and being based in Washington, D.C., we sort of fell into the government, the government and defense space. And so as we worked with those clients, we developed more and more, more expertise in working within a certain type of industry, certain idiosyncrasies that they had, uh, certain vernacular. And we built up a credibility within those types of entities. And so now as we're focusing, we're approaching a client and say, here's who else we've worked with from your space. Here are references. And so that builds credibility. And I think, you know, for anybody trying to build an HR business, that's a very key thing to focus on. You want to uh, make sure you have a very um, precise target such that your level of effort of getting that next customer, um, that next client is as low as possible. And you can only do that if customers almost already know they're going to work with you by the time you begin the conversation. So it's about credibility. It's about getting out there, making sure that folks know who you are and what you do, and you show off your work in a public way. Um, and that helps. Uh, and if you go too broad, then people, nobody's able to see themselves in your, in your work, and that makes it very hard. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to get to what you're doing to build credibility and get out there on the marketing side in a moment. But in the world of work, the world of HR, let's say, where do you see data science moving in and expanding? Because you've got areas such as employee turnover, engagement levels, things like that. Is it evolving or is it a little bit behind, a little bit ahead What in terms of the data science? Yeah, absolutely. So um, to answer your question of what does data science and machine learning mean for the workforce, uh, you have to start with a crystal understanding of what it is and what it isn't. So these aren't crystal balls that uh, give you foresight into what's you know, necessarily going to happen, right? They're tools. They're tools that help you have uh, an educated guess effectively as to what's likely to happen. And they don't do that through magic. They do that through pattern recognition, right? And they're equally not well, well for judgment calls, right? There's a reason why the Supreme Court justices are not, are not afraid that AI is gonna be taken over their jobs, right? <laughs> And the implications of that is that jobs that require judgment uh, are not at risk of generally being automated. Jobs that require a mechanical um, action uh, that doesn't require a ton of judgment, those are the skill sets and jobs that are more at risk. But um, I think that when you look at all professions, it's not that some are going to be automated and others will not, right? Think of bank tellers. Everybody was afraid that bank teller would not be a job once the ATM came along. That's yeah. clearly not true, right? Yeah. I think that'll be pervasively accurate. But what you need to do in order to be, you know, the bank teller of the future or the physician of the future and so on is evolving. So in a world where once you understand once you're able to make decisions that are 5% more accurate, it's very difficult to catch up with you, right? You can just own the market effectively. 
because you're that much more correct. Um, being data-driven in your decision-making is critical, effectively, no matter what field you're in. And so the skills to understand how uh, data can help you make better decisions are increasingly important in just about every profession, such that in order to be, for example, an instructional designer, you increasingly need to be well steeped in the theory of instructional design, in the theory of learning. How do you design a curriculum from the best instructionally sound way, given the conditions, given the learners, given the use cases, those judgment call type things. And the mechanics of assembling materials will, inc will increasingly be automated, right? We in fact built a lot of software ourselves to, to, to do some of that. So I think the nature of jobs will necessarily become more cerebral, more conceptual, um, and more focused on having good judgment and setting good directions, understanding how data can help you do that and make, calibrate your decisions effectively. Makes sense. And it seems to be borne out in the data that we see from time to time in the future of work, these sort of studies, there's a lot of, a lot going on in that area. What about data society itself? What kind of offerings do you do? How do you structure what you do? Is it all online? Is it classroom-based? That kind of thing. Yeah, you know, uh, we've actually done every single modality uh, <laughs> over the past eight years. So we've done everything from strictly self-paced to in-person and structure-led to in this post-pandemic world or pandemic world still. Um, virtual and structural led. And so each modality we found has its own pros and cons. Um, and one is not necessarily better than another. Uh, it's more about the use cases and context. So self-paced uh, learning is great for um, brushing up on something, uh, for reviewing something that's straightforward and just collecting information. Instructional led learning, of course, is much more useful for um, behavior change, especially if you're working on projects together, you're collaborating with your colleagues, you're building relationships. Um, it's much more sticky in terms of changing how people act and sort of creating a community that acts in a different way. So for us, um, we are continuously expanding our repertoire of technical trainings, whether it's software engineering, data science, data analytics, or AI. Um, and we're reimagining how content is created and delivered. So uh, we've developed a product called uh, Melder that effectively streamlines the deployment of a training program and blends sort of self-paced plus instructor-led curricula, mentorship programs, uh, an ability for uh, staff to collaborate with one another and for the folks who oversee learning programs to have an understanding of who is learning what when, who is collaborating with whom on what, and have a good understanding of the learning of the entire organization. So for us, it's very much product focused uh, and focused on automating things that historically have been done manually uh, in the L&D space, focusing on the learner experience and the instructor experience and the experience of the managers who guide learning programs. Wow, that sounds excellent. And so that is mostly focused internally within an organization as opposed to a public program, a public course. Is that right? That's right. That's right. We've ultimately learned uh, to, well, specialize as we, as we talked about earlier. And so what we've learned is that an enterprise customer is somewhat different than the need of an individual. Um, when you're targeting uh, individuals in a B2C or a business to consumer space, 
the real problem you're solving is folks are looking to make connections and get a job, right? That's the most frequent use case. And so there's a big work stream you have to take on of building relationships with employers, uh, of providing career counseling, resume polishing, right? So there's an entire customer service aspect to fulfilling the, how do I get a job question? For an enterprise customer, the pain points are actually a little different, even though it's still education per se. Uh, so we're more targeted towards the second customer and helping them make sure that as an organization, they're moving their skill sets forward in a cost-effective manner. Excellent. So you mentioned before around building credibility and you leveraged your relationships and you know, the credibility you had, uh, the three co-founders in your career histories and backgrounds. As you try to expand beyond that, and you talked about getting out there and getting known, what kind of marketing methods have worked well for you guys and what do you see that you'll use in the future? Well, again, I wish I had a silver bullet. Um, <laughs> and if you do find one, please let me know. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, when I look at us over the years, um, it's been driven by a couple of things primarily. One, our networks. And two, people seeing the things that we put out into the world, articles we've written, um, webinars that we've given, uh, blogs, and saying, oh, this is really interesting. I'd like to talk to you about it and reaching out proactively to us. When I look at our actual revenues, they have predominantly come from those sources. Right. And so when I think about what do we do in order to make sure that we have um, a, a flourishing and growing business, we make sure to get out there, to write, to speak, uh, to talk to folks like you on podcasts like this, um, and to build our networks in the areas where we're present. Uh, that's been the best use of use of time and energy. And in fact, if you're going to think about it from a quantitative standpoint, uh, if you know that this is the thing that works, how do you optimize it? Well, you go to events with bigger exposure. You go to bigger conferences. You buy a bigger booth. Uh, you make sure that your presence is that much greater given the you know, limited resources that you have. Yeah. Uh, that's been our secret to success. Nice. And for the content, the articles, webinars, things like that, how do you promote that? Because it's one thing to build it, but then the people don't necessarily come to quote field of dreams. So have you done any paid promotion of that content and the marketing, the articles, the webinars, that side of things, or has it always been more of the events and conferences? We've done some, we, you know, we've done some, some promotion without question. If you think about the fact that if a conference works, you want to go to a bigger conferences, conference, well, the same thing, the same story goes for publishing articles. If an article drives traffic, you just want that article to be seen by more eyes. So it's about working with it with a good PR firm to get your perspectives into more widely read publications, uh, audiences of bigger and bigger size. Uh, we've learned that to be effective. Yeah, getting quoted, interviewed for the larger profile pieces, the Forbes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. It's exposure is, is the name of the game. Yeah. Um, and we've learned that's the thing that works. You know, we, we have certainly tried our fair share of cold calling and cold outreach. Um, and it's certainly a good thing. It's, I think, a necessary and critical component of a business development machine. Mm -hmm. And it's necessary for your account executives. Um, but that by itself uh, is insufficient in that by the time you call somebody, they should have already heard about you somewhere yeah. and sort of say, you know, you know, think of any successful tech firm like I... Uh, um, I know Databricks well, I love that technology, you know, and so on, but I still get marketing emails from them, right? <laughs> and, so, and so you kind of have to have both components in order to be successful. Yeah. 
Got it. Makes sense. So we've had lots of HR tech and consulting firms on the podcast and there'll be more in the future. Many of them partner up or do co-promotions or tech integrations, things like that. Do you ever partner with other companies to promote or would you see that happening in the future? We do. We absolutely love doing that. You know, we've recently inked a partnership with NVIDIA. Uh We're we're one of six sort of formally uh, formal partners on for delivering NVIDIA trainings in North America, one of only 20 in the world. Nice. Um, and so we're very proud to, to have that partnership and to have NVIDIA's trust uh, in teaching people how to apply advanced um, AI techniques using their hardware, using their technology. Um, so we're grateful for that partnership. We have a wonderful partnership with RStudio, uh, sort of the publishers, uh, the publishers of the uh, effectively user interface face and ecosystem for the R programming language, and equally Anaconda, the widest distributor of sort of standard set of Python libraries. Um, and so we love those partnerships. You know, we um, work closely with those organizations to get content out there um, and offer effectively free resources to their, to their audiences. Got it. Excellent. So second last question is, if people want to learn more about Data Society, what your offerings are, if they can refer business or if they're listening and they could be potentially a client, what should they do next? Well, they can always go on our website and check us out at datasociety.com or they can email me uh, at dimitri at datasociety.com. Excellent. All right. Well, the website and your email will be in the show notes. So thank you very much. And the last question, I'm often hearing Elon Musk talking about AI. What, what, what's, your, what's your take on Elon and his view on AI? So I think you need to bifurcate a little bit between what somebody can say in a tweet versus the actions that they take, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, I am think I'm more, I don't participate on social media that well. I'm just not, not, not built for it. Yeah. Um, so I, I can comment less on his tweets and more on his technology. And if you think about how he sequenced it, it's absolutely brilliant. So uh, the self-driving capabilities of Tesla, for example, right? Yeah. Um, how did that come to be? Well, it's all based on data, right? And so if you think about the introduction of the very first uh, artificial neural network uh, that's able to do things like text or image processing, the first research paper, right, that demonstrated its efficacy came out in 2012. If memory serves, the first uh, sort of Tesla that had all the right uh, hardware equipment to collect that data, rolled out around 2014, 2015, wow, something in that code. But what's genius about that insight is that means that the hardware that goes into a Tesla car that collects that data um, was thought about before that neural network was developed. So he had to have the foresight or whoever developed the car had to have the foresight that you're not gonna need ultra sophisticated sensors. You can take basic off the shelf sensors, correct, collect the right data and uh, just place the bet that the mathematics and the software is gonna catch up to where that trove of data can be used to autonomously guide a vehicle. That was the bet and that was brilliant, right? And so uh, that insight that you don't need to have super sophisticated technology, you just have to have the ability to collect a lot of data about as much as you can and do it, well, in a cost-effective way is what they did with Tesla was what's brilliant, right? Now, that wasn't just Tesla. Look at what SpaceX did. So SpaceX realized that in order for space travel, space tourism, space technology to be affordable, you need to have a reusable rocket. To make a reusable rocket, the hardest part was entry and re-entry and landing. 
right? Reentry can be solved with engineering, but landing is the tricky part, right? And so he figured out that just like what they were doing with Tesla, they could do with spaceships. So what did he do? So he outfitted his rockets with a ton of sensors, right? Sensors that were relatively inexpensive and sort of widely commercially available and collected a ton of data. And then used that data in order to calibrate the software that powers the rocket to land it, right? The whole autonomous rocket on an autonomous ship concept, right? And so when you think, so when you look at what Elon has actually done, uh, he's been very prescient in terms of what Google has frankly showed us back in the 90s. If you collect more data about a thing, it is almost impossible to beat you. Uh, afterwards, right? That's why Bing, one of the many reasons why Bing was not able to overtake Google despite of despite Microsoft's much more vast resources at the time, right? So, and he's sort of take, taken that approach, you know? I think um, some other prescient warnings that he's had about AI is the need to, to regulate it, right? Um, there is a very interesting series of books by Yuval Harari, uh, Sapiens, um, Homo Deus and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, where he basically analyzes human history and how humans react to outside stimuli. And we are very much evolutionary biological beings, right, that are endowed with the same sort of biological systems and receptors as a lot of other life, life forms. And so what AI is able to do is find the patterns to which we react, to which our bodies react. And that can be used for good and the not so good, right? And that's where I think his points around uh, how do we regulate AI such that the greater intelligence, the greater capabilities we have to influence ourselves are properly monitored. How do we make sure that judgment is exercised rather than patterns are followed blindly? I think that point is very astute. Hence the need for regulation to take the good, not the bad. Yeah, that's right. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, I love it. I love it. Dimitri, just call out the website again for us for Data Society. Absolutely. Datasociety.com. Excellent. All right. And it's Dimitri at datasociety.com. Excellent. Well, Dimitri, I wish you all the best for what you're doing because it's such an important area and such an, an area of massive growth. So huge potential and you've really packaged it and positioned it so well. So congratulations and well done. And thank you very much for joining me today. Likewise, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Really love your podcast. Really appreciate the show. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.